What is up, everyone? Welcome back to the Fitness Stuff for Normal People podcast. I'm Mariana. And I'm Tony. And the fitness industry right now is not what it could be. It's become something built on unrealistic expectations, aesthetics, and external validation, directing attention away from what actually matters. The bottom line is we're not just trying to provide another fitness podcast, but completely change the fitness industry for the better by providing you with the knowledge and tools to give you confidence in applying the best possible training and nutrition into your own where today we are doing another round robin style episode. We've done a few of these in the past where we cover a few popular topics that don't need the level of detail that would require an entire episode. The topics that you guys still are dying to know the answers to. Specifically, we'll be discussing today new research on Tonga Ali and boosting testosterone. How to calculate exactly how strong you should be for how long you've been training to set more deliberate and strategic goals. The top 10 fitness books of all time if you want to take your game to the next level. Immune boosting foods and supplements. And things you may not be realizing are causing your digestive issues. Oh, it's a hot episode. We also have exciting news. You want to tell me? You want me to tell me? I'll tell me. The last several months, we've been working on a little secret project. Building out our first ever fitness stuff podcast website and it's live yeah it's live today you can go check it out it's fitnessstuffpod.com but we've been building out this website just to stay in line with everything else we do to provide you as much free value as possible to make your life easier so not only are we going to have an entire episode page where you can search keywords to see if we've done an episode on that in the past but we've also created over half a dozen calculators with more in the works like the most up-to-date protein calculator, a TDE calorie calculator, where we tweaked the formula with the most up-to-date research to give you the most accurate, what we believe, calorie estimates for fat loss, muscle gain, recomp, and several others that we're going to go over today that have more to do with strength goals and more on the way. Again, that's fitnessstuffpod.com. We'll leave the link in the show notes below. And a quick shout out to our day ones, our PICs, partners in crime, Legion Athletics for sponsoring today's video. You know, we love them for a million different reasons. 100% of their supplements are backed by a scientific review board. They're third-party tested, and they even have a no-question-to-ask money-back guarantee if their supplements just don't work for you. You can use the Legion link in the show notes below or type in the code FSPOD, that's F-S-P-O-D, at checkout for 20% off your first order or double points for every order after that. Mariana's a points girl. I'm not a points guy, but if you like points, that's double points. I am a points girl. Yeah. That's a lot of points. Did you go see Jupiter yesterday? I didn't. I didn't even know. You were telling me. I didn't even know that was a thing. Are you like super interested in that stuff, like space and stuff? I like it, but I'm not. I don't know. Like it I just, like the stars. It <laughs> blows my freaking – just the scale of things blows my yeah. freaking mind. For those wondering, we record this on Tuesday. This was Monday, what, the 16th, October 16th? You could see Jupiter – the planet with your eyes and like through binoculars, you could make out the actual planet. Yeah, that that's is cool. 391 million miles away. Do you yeah. realize how far that is? 391 million miles. That's it would take a long time to get there. I think <laughs> it would take, I did the math cause I was just bored and geeking out about this a little bit. So 391 million miles and you could see it with binoculars that mm. blew my mind with freaking binoculars. Let's just say, for example, you decided the podcast thing wasn't for you, right? It wasn't working out. You're like, you know what I'm more passionate about is running. 
and I want to run to Jupiter. If you ran at a hasty little seven miles per hour, pretty quick pace jog. And for those at home, the cool fact that I've learned about Mariana is she doesn't get tired ever. Like she doesn't <laughs> need to sleep. She doesn't need to eat, use the bathroom. She just goes, she just goes, she doesn't get tired. Scientists don't understand how it works. So let's just say Mariana ran 24 seven around the clock at seven miles per hour until she died, which with medical tech advances, let's say is another 70 years. If she just decided <laughs> to do that, quit the podcast and go by the end of her life at a hundred years old, she still wouldn't have even made it 1% closer than she was to start. And no, you can see it with yeah. your binoculars. That's insane. That's insane. That was, so that right after the solar eclipse we had like two days ago, which I didn't see. <sighs> It's a good week if you like this. We have five topics in today's mm -hmm. round robin, though, instead of four. I'm excited. We can't get off track. And I've got, you know, Dennis, do you know who Dennis Rodman is? No. NBA, old NBA player, played for the no, Bulls. No, I don't. <laughs> I have just so much energy today. He was crazy. And he would show up to the Bulls games with so much energy that they would literally have like an exercise bike on the sidelines. So when he wasn't playing, he would just be going hard, like not just keeping the blood flowing, but hard on the sidelines. Because he just had so much energy that That's he hilarious. needed to take out. That's how I feel today. I don't like, like a hamster. It. You yeah. got to walk like Dennis Rodman or like a hamster. I'll be. The, I'm probably more like a hamster than <laughs> Dennis Rodman. <sighs> Where should we start? How about? I'm pretty interested in this one. Strength standards. We'll go strength. Then we'll go into immune. Cause I'm actually really curious about this. Mm -hmm. Then to Tangat Ali and finish up with gut health and books. I like that. Strength standards. Have you heard of these before? Strength yes. standards. Yeah. So for those unfamiliar because I think a lot of people don't quite understand when you start lifting weights, obviously your main priority should be to get stronger, right? When you first start lifting weights, you should not worry about how your strength compares to others. When you look at people on Instagram or people in the gym, you shouldn't be measuring how strong you are on a certain lift to how strong someone else is. But as you become more advanced, one of the best ways to keep yourself motivated is to set strength targets in the gym especially once you reach a more comfortable physique, you're not just going through that constant cut and bulk cycle. Strength goals are some of the most motivating goals you can set. I know I've been working for someone squat bench and deadlift for quite a time now, but there's a right and wrong way to set them. Like how many times do you see people bummed out because they're not as strong as someone they saw on Instagram? Oh my God, all the time. Like it's very easy to get down on yourself for that, but yeah. it's not warranted most of the time. No, it's silly. But so to do this effectively, you need to know how much weight you should be able to lift on a given exercise for where you currently are. Like we've talked about that for the goal. Like you need a laugher curve. Like you shouldn't just blindly set a goal. You should set it based on where you currently are. Because if you just set it with some random goal based on what you saw on Instagram or someone else, you're just going to set yourself up to fail. And you might not realize that's so out of reach that it didn't even make sense in the first place. So this is where strength standards can be helpful and they come in. Now, strength standards, these are like strength benchmarks for different exercises based on what other weightlifters with similar characteristics, like your height, your weight, and your experience level can realistically achieve. So these can be useful because they, one, they give you targets to aim at that are challenging, but not so far out of reach that you can hit it. The second reason is they can help you understand your individual strengths and weaknesses. Like you might realize, like I did, my bench press and deadlift were up to par and my squat was pretty far behind, right? So they can kind of help you identify your strengths and your weaknesses. And they really help you see how much progress you've made since you've started lifting. So someone who's several years into it, they can help you see 
how well you've done marked up against others. And there's quite a few strength standards on the internet, but they usually show up in like tables used for different exercises. I don't know if you're familiar with like the tables, right? Where it says your bench press, your squat, your deadlift, they're either based on your body weight or experience level. And then you kind of line up how strong you are based on how strong you should be. The tables are the more familiar ones and they rank you anywhere from like a beginner to a novice, intermediate, advanced, elite level. So sometimes some of them have like five different categories. Some have three. It really just depends on where you look. I think the most popular is Mark Ripito's. If you don't know Mark Ripito, he wrote a book that we're going to be talking about later, but he's a strength training coach. He's best known for starting strength, which is basic barbell training. It's arguably one of the most well-written, most important books on strength training ever written. He has an individual set of strength standards. Tim Henrique, who's also a professional powerlifter and powerlifting coach, has his own set, which is broken up into three categories. And then there's also the USPA and USAPL powerlifting standards. I don't know if you've ever seen or familiarized yourself with each one. These are like the United States Powerlifting Association standards. Mm -hmm. I don't like those as much. I don't feel like they're as accurate because they're not drug tested, one. And two, these are looking at strictly powerlifting athletes who are usually much more advanced, like to the elite stage yeah. than most people. I don't know. Have you been familiar with like specific ones or just familiar with the idea in general? I'm just familiar with the idea. I would never really I never really use them, but I remember in school learning about them but I haven't used them in practice. But yeah, those are the main ones. There's others like Lon Kilgore, Glenn Pendeley. There's several out there on the internet and they're all just a little bit different. So I'm going to break down a couple of the different ones, but then one big problem that I see with them that we want to tweak for you. So first is Mark Ripito's. There are five different categories from beginner to elite where Tim Henriquez only has three. Mark Ripito's provide a strength standard for the standard squat, bench, deadlift, and overhead press, where Tim's is better for those plus about eight other exercises. So more broken into like the leg press, the chest press, different movements that are outside of the big three compounds if you don't have those. But they each take into account only really two things to determine what level you're at. And that is your current weight and how strong you are on that certain Lift. And obviously that's a big, big piece of data that goes into it is how heavy you are. The heavier you are, generally the more weight you're able to support. Why a lot of big body builders pack on kind of a gut sometimes to have a bigger center of mass to actually drive the weight forward. But technically, and I think this is where things lie and not to overthink it. Technically, someone with good genetics could start at like level three as a weightlifter when they're just starting out in the gym compared to someone with poor genetics and poor programming, poor discipline, they could be a level one after training for several years. Okay. So these strength standards, they're not exact science, but it gives you a good idea of where you need to be. But we were talking about this beforehand. They're leaving out a pretty big piece of how strong you're able to be, right? Yeah. Which is how tall you are, like mm -hmm. your actual height. When we get down into the biomechanics. Your anatomy plays a massive role into how strong you're able to get. And I've got mm -hmm. two examples for this, right? First example, if your bicep tendon, for example, attaches a few millimeters further away, millimeters further away from your elbow, it will then improve your biceps leverage, which will allow you to lift more weight. Where if it attaches a few millimeters closer to your elbow, 
it's going to decrease that biceps leverage, which is going to reduce the amount of weight you can lift. And you're like, okay, it's a few millimeters here and there. How much of a difference can that really make? This could lead one person to lift up to 25% more than another. Mm -hmm. If they held the exact same amount of muscle mass, but they had different insertion points and different attachment points, 25% differences in strength with the same exact muscle, the same exact build, just based on that. So that's one piece, which is something that is harder to account for, but it explains a lot of top powerlifter strength. And this is where I think I geek out a little bit more, <sighs> but something that I've struggled with a long time, because I'm 6'2", 6'3", and I've always struggled with seeing how slowly my strength would progress sometimes compared to others. And you've probably seen this too, where it's like strength sometimes just doesn't pop up. Here's how much your height impacts, how strong you are in the gym. Your bones... Essentially, they act as levers when you're performing an exercise, okay? And the muscle is what provides the force that moves the lever against whatever weight it's working against, okay? So let's take bench press, for example. Your pecs are going to be the main muscle that's being used to move the levers against the weight or the barbell. So if we take two people with the same exact amount of muscle mass, but we make one of them or one person's arm just two inches longer, than the others. Two things are going to happen. First, the distance traveled increases. So over the course of 10 reps, the person with longer arms is going to have to move that weight a total of 20 more inches, almost two feet further than the one with shorter arms. And the second piece is something called torque. Torque, which I think a lot of people refer to as cars, but you guys know I'm not a car guy. But in the context of biomechanics is just talking about how far the weight is from the main joint moving it or the elbow joint in this case. Okay. So the further away the weight is from the joint, the more torque is required to move the same weight. This means that in a lift like the bench press, the same exact weight could be anywhere from 10 to 20% harder for the person with just two extra inches on their arms. Your height matters. Like two extra inches can make something 10 to 20% harder at the same weight, that's a disadvantage. Yeah. Okay, so your height really does matter. And that's where this is a shameless plug. We made our own strength standards calculator on the website that just launched. And we take the height into the equation and your anatomy that goes into it to give you a more accurate look at it. That's a big piece of the puzzle that we were just talking for, what, 20 minutes before the episode we even started recording on torque mm -hmm. and biomechanics. It's interesting yeah. to it learn is. about this it stuff. It's really fascinating. It makes sense too, especially like when I first learned about this being six feet tall and my limbs are, I'm very lanky. It really, when it, I looked at, okay, what are some of my best like lifts in the gym? What do I have the most like difficult time with? It plays a huge role in it and not enough people talk about that. Yeah. And just, that was the bench press example where mm -hmm. if someone has longer arms, it can also be an advantage, not a disadvantage in like a deadlift because they don't have to lean down as far to pull up the bar, right? So not just saying that it makes everything harder being taller, but it can make certain aspects of certain lifts more challenging. And if you've never used like a strength standards calculator before, all you have to do is figure out your one rep max in the exercise that you're looking to do. And I do wanna put this important note in here because testing your one rep max, have we talked about it in an episode before about how yeah. you really don't wanna truly test your one rep max that yeah, often? We've talked about it uh, a few times. Yeah, in our, it, like, our it takes episodes. away from your overall programming and progress if you're just maxing out your one rep max because 
if you don't know your true rep one rep max offhand, or you haven't calculated it in the last 12 months, we really recommend using like a one rep max calculator, which we also have, but there's several on the internet, like bodybuilding.com too, to estimate your one rep max based on your four to six rep max, rather than just seeing how much weight you can load on the bar one time. That's where things get a little bit more dangerous. So what you'd want to do is calculate where you are in those lifts, enter that into your calculator. And then based on the goals it gives you, let's say your intermediate ranked, your novice ranked, wherever you are, you want to set reasonable, but challenging strength goals from that. It's not just a cool piece of information to know, but I would say the three things you want to focus on is one, focus on where you're weakest first. So for example, if your bench press and deadlift are both in the intermediate category, but your squat is in the beginner, stop skipping leg day, get your squat up first. It's a good way to point out imbalances in your body. Once you do that, or once you're even, then it's a simple goal. If you're intermediate, do what you need to do to get from intermediate to advanced one step forward or beginner to novice, novice to intermediate, wherever you are, try and focus on the things that are required. Cause it's going to be different for everywhere you are to get to the next level, which we have tips on and wrote down a whole blog piece about what to do to get out of there next. But then another piece that I don't think people realize is you can boost what rank you are, not just by increasing your strength on a movement, but by losing body fat, which will drop you down into the next weight category. Like if you're 200 pounds and you can squat 225, that would put you in the beginner category. If you were to lose 20 pounds and get your body weight down to 180, but you were able to maintain that squat weight, that would boost you to the novice category. That would jump you one category up just by losing that and maintaining. So that is strength standards or how strong you should be based on that. That was a good little envelope of it. Yeah. Is there anything I I'm leaving out of that one? I feel like that was a pretty good cover up. No. No, and I think cool. we, anyone could really benefit from that too. So, yeah. So, yeah. we'll link our calculator down in the show notes here for this episode. But now I want to know about something big. It's that time. Yeah. It, it, the air is getting a little crisp. It right? is. The air is getting a little crisp. People get a little runny noses sometimes. I'm excited about this. You prepared a piece on immune boosting strategies, yes. supplements, like how legit this, this piece is. Yeah. And you ha- like, if you haven't already, you're going to see this everywhere, whether it's, an immune boosting soup, an immune boosting drink, supplements to boost your immune system, foods. It is everywhere this time of year. And it is, people are, I feel like this is not new. This is always going to be a thing. And it drives so much revenue as well for companies. People really, really tap into it. I mean, people care. You don't want to get sick. Being sick sucks. It it does make sense to capitalize on that. But Companies have capitalized on the fact that most people don't have a complete understanding of how your immune system works. You, sh- you should like, you shouldn't. Why would you? Kind of know the basics, but not everyone's going to be well versed in, in immunity. Do you know uh, any bigger uh, ones than emergency? That emergency powder—that's the biggest. Emergency one that comes airborne. airborne. Is airborne just vitamin C as well? I think. Yeah, it's, it's a tablet that has like a million percent of your daily vitamin C. Yeah, that's sorry. The first thing that pops in my mind when you say mm-hmm. this. And this is, I think this has been funny because this is an old, very old marketing strategy campaign that's still around. It's one that hasn't changed much. Like emergency, that's been around since the 90s. Like this is yeah, I remember not- Yeah, as a kid. Yeah. So can you really boost your immune system? 
the immune system is not simple. It's a network of cells, tissues, and organs that help your body fight infections, illnesses, diseases, and it works to recognize and protect against foreign invaders that can make you sick, right? It's very, very, very finely tuned. And where else do we see this over oversimplification of systems? You see it with gut health all the time. When people are talking about your blood sugar, people over simplify so many functions in the body to make it sound like there's just a really quick, simple answer for this gold standard of health that everyone's looking for. Your metabolism. But, yeah, your metabolism. And how it works is there's this balance between an immune system that is effective at limiting the ability of bacteria, viruses, and parasites to cause infection and a hyperactive immune system that can cause problems such as allergies, diabetes, and other types of auto-inflammatory and autoimmune diseases. If there were this, if there was a wholesale boost, if, if there was a product that could boost your immune system, it would trigger autoimmunity and other problems. If it could really, if there was something that mm. could boost your immune system to a point that it's over active, having an overactive immune yeah. system. That can lead into a lot of autoimmune disorders when you have this overactivity of your cells in your immune system. So this boosting idea, the word boost drives me nuts because that's impossible to do. The concept of <laughs> boosting is very prob problematic because it highlights the idea that immunity is like a muscle that we could strengthen and change train with supplements. Yeah, just the more the better. Yes. Yeah. And it's so highly complex, tightly regulated. It's challenging for any particular supplement or food to have a significant effect in a boosting immunity standpoint. While you want your system to function well and properly, you don't need to boost it at all. And there's not much evidence at all that any one particular supplement or nutrient food can boost immunity. But you can nurture it. I, I like the idea of like nurturing your That's immune adorable. system. Da yeah, it's something you, it. you want to take care of. Like any aspect, it just falls into overall health. Over time, if you are practicing good health behaviors daily, that's going to nurture your immune system. But there's no boosting. There's no like supplement that's going to quickly prevent a sickness from coming on. And But everyone thinks that that you can. But the best way to support your immune system, I like that wording better, yeah. to support your immune system. You're supporting your health. To help it function at its peak capacity, it's going to be eating a diet mainly consisting of whole foods, specifically fruits and vegetables, and fiber. So you want those foods higher in micronutrients because that micronutrients play the largest role in supporting your immune system. That's going to be the biggest component there, not this one is, particular food. This is almost seeming kind of like the testosterone conversation we had with Derek where it's like there's no real like and funny that we're talking about Tonga Ali next but like there's not a magic testosterone booster per se but the things that will no. raise your testosterone are more just making sure that the things you should be getting aren't missing yes that's what it kind of seems like here it's not like adding more of these things is going to be beneficial you just want to make sure you're not deficient or getting an insufficient amount of them. And if mm -hmm. you are, that boost will probably improve your immune system or improve your testosterone. Is that kind of what it's like, like same kind of system mm -hmm. almost? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Makes so much and, more sense. And then, so diet's going to be the crux, but then you all have other lifestyle factors, like making sure you're getting regular physical activity. 
getting enough sleep. Don't smoke. Don't smoke cigarettes at all. Quit smoking. Avoid or limit alcohol. Manage your stress and also maintain a healthy weight. Those so the boring stuff. The boring stuff. The boring stuff that happens over time. The little habits that you add into your day that make the biggest difference when you see six months, a year, two years, you repeatedly doing these health behaviors. That's not sexy. That doesn't sell, right? You tell someone, oh, stop smoking. It's going to make your immune system better. Ha, huh, okay. Like easier said than done. Like obviously smoking isn't good for you. That's not going to sell. But these things play a huge role in how your immune system functions. Now, looking more so on the nutrient standpoint, all all micronutrients are going to be good for you. You want to get meet all of your micronutrient needs. However, there are three nutrients that you could think of that do play the largest role. And I feel like a lot of people don't. And no, it, don't think about them. I feel like they're not spoken about enough. So mm. the first one I would say I see sometimes, but not often, but zinc. And it's definitely marketed for immunity. Uh, um, lately it has, I feel like it started with vitamin C and then I started people, it was always the zinc, zinc, the zinc sprays, the lozenges, the everything zinc. Yes. Next. Yeah. Yeah. And zinc's a nutrient found in foods that helps the immune system as well as your metabolism function. It functions as an intracellular signal molecule for immune cells. So that's its role that it plays in the body just at baseline. So it plays a role in your immune system. I feel like I've said this so many times, but people will take a nutrient that just has a baseline function in the body and say that taking more of it enhances that process. Not and quite. that's not true. What is true is if you're not getting enough of that nutrient, you're not hitting your recommended daily value, then yeah, you're going to see some adverse mm -hmm. effects of being deficient or insufficient in that nutrient. And that's going to show up in the role that it plays in your body. So you do want to make sure you're getting enough zinc and where zinc supplements can be popular is it's definitely harder to get in your diet. Yeah, so, I was going to ask that. Like how, cause I feel like zinc, when you think of high zinc foods, they're not yeah. some like common everyday food. Like the first one that pops mm -hmm. in my head is oysters, always oysters. oysters. And I love them, but I'm like, I'm not, oh, you're not dollar, having that every day. They had dollar oyster bars in San Diego all over the place. And then over the last year, they all changed from $1 to $2. And oh. Tony don't play that game. I don't, I'm not, I'm playing that game anymore. $2 for yeah, an oyster. They're expensive. They're yeah. expensive. But yeah, oysters will give six oysters will give you 300% of your daily value. That's the gold tier right there, oysters. But people aren't, people, a lot of people don't like oysters and you're not going to be eating oysters every single day. Yeah. The next best is going to be red meat. So 3.5 ounces of red meat is going to be 60% of your daily value. Oh, that's huge. So, yeah. So red meat's a really good source. And then the others that have zinc are all less than, they're between 10 and 20% would be legumes, nuts, seeds, and dairy products as well. But again, that's between 10 and 20% of your daily value. It's going to be harder to get your zinc from foods, which is why supplementing with zinc during cold and flu season can be helpful, especially if you're not meeting those needs. Now, yeah. some research suggests that zinc supplements can help aid in the immune system when it comes to the common cold and prevent the common cold from getting worse. So oh, like taken when, like, not just overall, like, like we're saying, like every day, just regardless of it. But if you start to feel a sickness, this is one that might make a difference. If you like yes. start to feel a runny nose, you start increasing zinc. Oh, mm -hmm. that's interesting. Yeah. This is the only one that is well enough research for that purpose of the, okay, I start to feel a cold coming on taking those zinc. What are they? 
lozenges. Is that how it's you pronounced? Know, I don't know, but I do know I almost got in trouble one time because I asked Zach Cohen, right? Our friend who's a dietitian, what the RDA for zinc was because I have those zinc gummies mm-hmm. that I get and they taste like Sour Patch Kids. They're delicious. Oh, God. And I just would keep going back and going back. And I messaged him like, hey, dude, am I going to get in trouble for like eating too much zinc? He's like, oh, no, you should be good as long as you're not eating more than like 50, I think it's 50 milligrams a day before it mm-hmm. becomes toxic. And I was like, look, at three of these freaking gummies had 50 milligrams. I'm like, bro, what if I... I'm, like, I'm dead. Hypothetical. Let me throw a hypothetical at you is what if someone just had like 200? I'm like, are they in trouble? He's like, then they hypothetically probably should stop eating that much zinc. So that's all I know is be if you have supplements, be freaking careful. Yeah, don't take too many of them. But yeah, so zinc can be great. And again, it's going to help... Per- it might help. This is not going to be for everyone. And this is also based off of research in healthy individuals, people not discussing people with any immune disorder, but it can help your symptoms from getting worse. It's not going to eliminate your cold. Mm. It could also prevent the acceleration of your symptoms. So maybe decrease the time that you have a cold, but it's not going to get rid of your cold altogether. That's not what okay. it can do. Stop things from getting um, a little bit worse. Yeah. Yeah. And but if you ha- are if you have enough zinc in your system, if you're getting enough daily already, taking the zinc supplements isn't going to do anything extra. So the, all of this research has been done in people who are insufficient mainly, so not completely deficient, but have insufficient okay. levels. So do you That's think this is see. maybe worth one of those? Kind of like we say with magnesium, is like you don't need a magnesium supplement, you don't need a zinc supplement, but check out mm-hmm. how much you're getting because that why I started taking those zinc gummies in the first place. Is when I realized I'm really only getting like twenty thirty milligrams from like pumpkin seeds some like smaller things through my day, but I was not getting the RDA. Mm-hmm. So I started taking a gummy. Is this one of those kind of like magnesium where it's like, you don't need it, but check out how much you're getting right now. And if you're not, it's worth yeah. cheap supplements. Like zinc supplements are not expensive. Yeah. And especially during cold and flu season, because during cold and flu season, you are exposed to more bacteria, more viruses. So your immune system is going to be working harder. So mm-hmm. that's where it may be beneficial. Now, the next one, which is not typically marketed for immune health, but a lot of new research has come out in, with regards to vitamin D. And Tony first pointed this out to me when he, he did our vitamin D that. episode. So I did want to mention it because there are so many roles that vitamin D plays in the body. If you haven't listened to the vitamin D episode, we will link it in the show notes, but we talk about all those in detail. But it also plays a large role in immune system functioning. and. Massive. Majority of Americans have insufficient vitamin D levels. So this is one that it's just like, it is probably warranted to market it for supporting your immune system, not boosting your immune system. You have to be careful about that wording. But a lot of the research came out first. We always knew that vitamin D played a role in immune system functioning, but it hasn't been as popular in human studies until COVID-19 came out and um, research found that it reduced the risk of mortality from COVID-19 cases and reduce the need for intensive care ventilation. So by like a massive amount too, right? Like it was a massive difference where it's like people who were getting enough vitamin D and people who were insufficient, like it was a a night and day difference Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. those, right? That, yeah, I think that's, that blew my mind when I was reading about that. Yeah. And also makes sense though, because think about, I mean, COVID-19 is the most popular in the elderly and vitamin Mm. D deficiency, deficiency is most common in the elderly, at least in the US. It definitely makes sense, but there is a lot more research just kind of starting to evolve in terms of looking at supplementing with vitamin D for cases just like the common cold or even other disease 
states, like other viral states in disease populations as well. So I think that it's fascinating. It's a new area of research, but because it does play that role in the immune system and most people are not getting enough and it's hard to get through your diet, I I will recommend, you know, it can't hurt to supplement with vitamin D. Most people could benefit from it year round for a variety of reasons, not just yeah. immune health. It is harder to get from diet in sunlight alone. Some foods that are high in vitamin D include liver, egg yolks, fortified milks and dairy products, salmon and tuna. But getting that really high amount of vitamin D is going to be easiest from supplementing with it. And make sure you eat it with a fat source because – or supplement with a fat source because it is fat soluble. So you want to make sure you do that. Yeah. Legion's got a cool vitamin D. They just came out with their specific, like it was in their multi, but I know they came out with a much cheaper, it's just a vitamin D and K2 mm-hmm. supplement yes. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was cool. Mm-hmm. And then the next one is going to be another one that <laughs> I feel like is not talked about enough, but omega-3 fatty acids. So mm-hmm. that would think of like your fish oil supplements. Yeah. Omega-3s are found in fatty fish like salmon, herring, and mackerel. Also get it from walnuts, chia seeds, and flax seeds. And this has also been a newer area of research. Most recent studies, novel studies are in animal studies. So we have to keep this into account. But because of its anti-inflammatory effect on the body, so that's well known. So Mm -hmm. there are so many studies looking at fish oil supplementation in humans with regards to heart health and its ability to reduce inflammation. However, this effect on your overall immune system, that is newer. So this is something that it's, you know, I wouldn't say everyone is going to benefit from an immune system standpoint, but I do think within the next 10 years, this is Fish oil supplements aren't just going to be marketed for heart health. I also think they're going to be marketed for immune health because this anti-inflammatory effect, inflammation is a process that is accelerated when we are sick. You see this huge uptick in inflammation in the body. We're trying to get rid of whatever it is. And inflammation is a process that helps doing that. And omega-3s have a very large anti-inflammatory effect in the body. They provide the basic building blocks to reduce inflammation. So animal studies have confirmed that omega-3 fatty acids can reduce the inflammation associated with certain um, viruses and bacteria. I just thought I wanted to bring it up, even though there's not many human studies with the effect on your immune system. I never thought thought about that, but it makes so much sense. Yeah. Just in terms of its anti-inflammatory effect and also that omega-3s is not something that many people, at least Americans, get enough of in the diet. You can definitely get sufficient amounts from your diet alone, but not everyone has access to, you know, seafood. Maybe they don't like seafood. Nuts and seeds, they're expensive. Like walnuts are expensive and you're not going to – you could get a lot more bang from your buck from doing a fish oil supplement. Yeah. Uh, Okay. What about – what about vitamin C? The sub, like the emergencies, the airborne, what mm-hmm. the entire immune system, like, I feel like people are almost ingrained in their memory. Vitamin C is the most important thing for immune health. Since you were a kid, people taught you. Yeah. That. Eat an orange yeah. if you're getting sick. Vitamin C. Like, what about that? Because that was and not on your list. Not just eat an orange, but like have a lot of it. Take a lot of vitamin yeah, C. Like those more is better. Supplements. It's like in the thousands airborne. of your RDA, yeah. airborne or whatever mm-hmm. it is, the mm-hmm. emergency it's like you look at it, it's like it provides over a thousand or thousands of percent yeah. of your daily recommended intake. Like what, like that's the entire immune market. Like what about mm-hmm. that? 
And this is the one, so vitamin C, I've talked about this with my family, friends. If someone's taking an emergency, like I will be annoying and bring it up, but no one ever believes me, which is just interesting because there's this, from a societal standpoint, it is just this acceptance of, yeah, vitamin C is going to- Yeah, you don't question it. But despite its popularity as a remedy for the common cold, there's quite literally zero evidence to suggest that taking a larger dose of vitamin C can prevent a cold or any type of illness for that matter, or make your cold better once you get one. Like it won't shorten the cold. It won't make the effects less. It won't do anything taking these supplements. No. So, and the misconception lies in the fact that yes, vitamin C is one of the micronutrients that does play the largest role in immune functioning. It does. And our bodies don't make vitamin C. You have to get it from your diet. And it is very easy to get vitamin C from your diet. It's usually, it's right. Citrus fruits, also green vegetables, tomatoes, juices. It's vitamin C. Ascorbic acid is also, it's found in a lot of packaged foods because it's a preservative. I was going to say processed food, like you don't have to eat a whole food diet. Like even in processed foods, like you look at it, it says vitamin C in a bag of Doritos. It'll have vitamin C in there. Yeah. Cause it is a preservative. I mean, drinking one glass of orange juice is going to help you is you've already reached your daily value for vitamin C. One cup of strawberries, one cup of bell pepper. You don't need a lot at all. It's very, very easy. And vitamin C deficiency and even insufficiency is so uncommon in the US. It's very rare that you see it unless if you're looking at malnourished or undernourished populations. So it's very uncommon. So that being said, first, you don't really need to divide You don't need to supplement ever with vitamin C. You really don't. Most people do not unless if they have an underlying issue that maybe you can't eat. I don't know. You're allergic to any citrus fruits, foods, or you can't have vitamin C for some reason. But while you may have heard that a large dose of vitamin C can slightly reduce the duration of a cold, it only applies, vitamin C helping with your colds and your immune system only applies if you're hitting your recommended dose every single day of the year, even when you're not sick. So just hitting your vitamin C needs is going to support your immune system. And that's something you really, it seems like just don't need to worry about. Like you could thoughtlessly hit your vitamin C goals. You probably are without checking. Yeah. Yeah. If you're having some fruits and vegetables in your diet, you're probably eating, probably meeting those vitamin C goals. And and even then though, like even if without fruits and vegetables, I still would bet most people are hitting their vitamin C with processed foods through different food. Like it's not hard. Yeah. No, it's not hard to do. If you take one of those vitamin C emergency packets or airborne packets, after your symptoms begin, there is no evidence, none at all, that suggests it will actually shorten the length of your cold. And that's, it's just always been so interesting. Yes, vitamin C does play a large role in immune health. Yes, you should be meeting your daily needs to support your immune system. But taking megadoses found in supplements has no added effect. Vitamin C is water soluble. So any excess that you are getting, you pee out. That's what people don't get about these water-soluble vitamins taken in supplement form. You can't store them. There's no storage for later use. You excrete them. You pee them out right down the drain. These supplements, off, these vitamin C emergency supplements often contain 1,667% more 
vitamin C than you actually need every single day. You pee that, that excess, you pee out. That has always been the funniest thing. And some emergencies, it depends on, I think, on how hydrated you are, but it can change the color of your pee. That's the emergency. There is quite simply no need to take emergency. If you feel like, oh, shoot, like I, I feel like I don't eat many fruits or vegetables. I feel like I don't have these vitamins. Then maybe just if you're worried, okay, yeah, just have an orange every day if you're actually worried on top of what you're already eating. But you don't need to take any sort of supplement, especially not one that gives you 1,667% more than your daily value. It has been – So it, it's – this so blows funny. my mind. It, and there's zero research other than research showing the role that vitamin C plays in your immune system. And that's what gets taken. It's like, oh, we're looking at the general function of vitamin C in immune health, just the general function at baseline. We're not talking about humans supplementing with it when they have a cold to make their symptoms improve. No, this is just what vitamin C does. And you can get you get it daily. Most people already get it daily. Yeah, and this is what- More is not helping you. That always cracks me up when I see people like, oh, I need to go get my emergency. I need to go see it. My family does that so much. I'm like, yeah, bro, maybe it helps placebo wise. Who knows? Like, I swear it helps. I'm like, but it doesn't. Maybe it maybe is placebo, placebo. total that's, placebo effect. I'm sure so, there's, yeah. Well, there's so many. I mean, that's with so many, the supplement industry, the L-carnitine thing. It's like, oh, L-carnitine in the body plays a role in fat loss. Take more of it and it'll boost fat loss. It's like, no, that's yeah. not how it works. Vitamin D and testosterone. If you're deficient, yeah, it'll probably raise your testosterone. If you're not, no, it's not going to do mm-hmm. That's so funny. That's how much of the supplement industry is just built on stuff like that. It's such a scam. Man, I was raised so. on emergency and airborne. That was always I never the first was. thing when I was, a, when I was a kid. That was the first thing my mom would do. That's, yeah. Yeah. I'd and also people will, take it, people will take it if they're going to be around someone that's sick. And that is the funniest thing to me. It's it's not going to prevent you from contracting a virus or getting bacteria. What do you mean? It doesn't just, what? That makes no sense. Okay. So it kind of blends pretty well into the next segment of our little round robin. Yeah. Testosterone boosters, because this is one that we've talked about. We've talked about testosterone boosters as a whole, but we've never talked too deep on Tangat Ali, which is probably the hottest one in the last several years. First popular, the Huberman effect, right? I think over a year ago, he had an episode where he massively extracted some data on Tongat Ali boosting testosterone. And then sales for that just went through the roof, right? His supplement company started carrying it all the, like it was just through the freaking roof. But there's been some actual more recent in the last year data published that I thought was interesting, but I wanted to break down on Tongat Ali. So if, if you're unfamiliar with this, Tongat Ali, it's your coma long folia, also known as like long jack, if you see it in a supplement. But it's an herb from Southeast Asia. And the extract of these roots have been traditionally used to enhance testosterone levels in men. And the claims, this is claims, right? To enhance testosterone levels in men, along with other benefits like acting as an aphrodisiac, improving your libido, and its ability to really reduce blood pressure, fever, fatigue. It's a miracle pill, essentially. But testosterone is the grabby word. We talked about that for mm-hmm. men, at least. Kind of how like for women, it's like if you say anything decreases your bloating, sales with women just skyrocket. If you say anything for boosting testosterone, sales for men skyrockets, right? doesn't need to have any legitimacy to it. But the internet, unfortunately, is full of low quality information 
about a lot of these things, especially when it comes to testosterone. But some interesting research has been published over the last several years showing a little bit of promise, a little bit of promise. And this is human data that's been more and more tested. Because when it first started taking off, and this is the Huberman effect, there was really only like rodent and mice studies showing that it may increase testosterone, but no legitimate human trials when he was talking about this and saying that it does this, which was kind of unwarranted. But recently, there's been more and more human trials. And the most interesting paper that I think came out, it came out late last year in 2022, but late last year, and it was a systematic review and made analyses of five different randomized control trials. We love those looking at over 300 individuals, and it was published out of university in Cape Town, South Africa, but they noticed a few things. They noticed statistically significant increases in testosterone in both healthy men and men with hypogonadism or classified as men with total testosterone under 300. So before most testosterone boosting aids that you could take orally, you, you usually only notice an increase in men with clinically low testosterone. But if you have normal testosterone, kind of like we're talking about with vitamin C or anything there, if you have a normal level, it's not going to do anything to improve that. It'll just bring you back to baseline. But this is one where in several studies, they noticed a significant increase in testosterone in already healthy men. So just for reference, the reference range for total testosterone in men is between 270 and 1,070 nanograms per deciliter, right? Or, so that's the reference range, which we've talked about. I, I recommend the, the Derek podcast on that. It's a big freaking range. And it matters more about like how old you are, your lifestyle, where you should consider a healthy range. Here's what I'm explaining real quick. Statistically speaking, in this research, there were some big improvements. For example, 600 milligrams of Tangat Ali taken daily for two weeks, increased total testosterone from 802 to 924 nanograms per deciliter in healthy men. That's a 15% increase in testosterone over two weeks of taking just Tangat Ali in already healthy men towards the higher end of that reference range. And in men that already had lower testosterone, showing that even 200 doses as low as 200 milligrams per day over six months helped increase total testosterone from 278 nanogram per deciliter to 400, which is a 43% increase in hypogonadal men. And then many more kind of giving similar increases, showing that 1.7 milligrams per kilogram of body weight over five weeks increased total testosterone from 182 to 364 nanograms per deciliter. That's a 100% increase, statistically speaking. That's big. But before everyone just goes and runs to get some Tangat Ali supplements, I want to show you what this means in like the real world. So first, you have to understand low testosterone a little bit to begin with, and then how Tangat Ali may help with this. Because just a quick little, I guess, oversimplification of this is low testosterone can really come from two places, right? Either a brain problem where your brain is not producing enough of the signal or sending enough signal out, which is luteinizing hormone or LH, that will then travel to your testes that tell them to produce more testosterone. If they don't get the signal, they're not going to produce more. So either one, it's a brain problem or two, it's an actual testes problem at the function level. So your brain is producing enough of that signal but the, the testes are not picking that up. They're not producing more testosterone once they get that. So either it's an up here problem or a down there problem. And this is, again, just a side note, why it's important to get your LH or luteinizing hormone tested in blood work if you're worried about low T, because if that's the problem, you could use something totally different like HCG or Clomid orally. 
that helps your body produce more of its own testosterone or the own signal rather than just injecting TRT or testosterone, which is going to shut down your body's own production. But Tangat Ali and how it works isn't really fully understood yet, like why these effects have been noticed. But one big hypothesis is that it helps increase testosterone by elevating the production of LH or that signal from the brain. That's one big piece. So thinking if it's a brain problem, this might serve as a helpful supplement. If it's a testes problem, you're probably not going to notice much. This is why you typically see the biggest increases in, is in men with clinically low testosterone because they probably aren't producing enough of that signal to begin with. But although these numbers are statistically significant in research, which just means whether an observed effect in the data is caused by something other than random chance, that's what will classify something as statistically significant, doesn't mean it's significant in real life when this comes to muscle building, fat loss, energy, or any noticeable changes. There's a difference between statistically significant and, okay, does this really play out in the real world? Did we have that conversation or was that with Derek? That was with Derek. Poop. There's a big difference there. I just want to break this out for example. Bodybuilders who use different anabolic or androgenic steroids like testosterone, they usually boost their testosterone from within that normal range, 270 to 1070, to several times the upper limit. So you're not just talking about an increase of testosterone from 200 to 400 or from 800 to 900. We're talking about testosterone increases when you're using steroids upwards of like the two, 3000 range to even I've seen 5,000 to 10,000 nanograms per deciliter in certain cases when you're stacking multiple compounds. Okay. So this means increasing it 400%, not 20, 30%, 15%, hundreds of percent over and over again. So that's where you start to notice major physical changes in muscle building, in fat loss, in all these things is boosting it past the human range. It's not really that meaningful. If you're going to get a, like something that says it increases your testosterone by 15%, that grabs you. Yeah. But that's not that meaningful. Like a 15% boost in testosterone, if you're already in healthy ranges, you're not going to notice better muscle building. You're not going to notice better fat loss. You're not going to notice the, the, the drive benefits, all the things that come with testosterone. You're not going to notice that if you're already within like the upper higher range, mm -hmm. right? Well, you'll probably notice it if you're in those lower ranges, like we had talked about, like clinically lower testosterone or in the lower range of normal. And you see a pretty big bump from something like Tongat Ali that you could notice a difference more in your energy, not necessarily your muscle building potential or anything else. But it was interesting research because it did notice a statistical jump, but it's not that meaningful. And I think that's important because yeah. I, I know probably our social media accounts, like what we see on our feeds are probably different, but I've seen people cover like this exact paper saying like how important it is to supplement with Tongat Ali because you're going to see 10, 15, 20% jumps in testosterone. It just doesn't mean that much. Yeah. Like 20%, it doesn't mean that much. And I thought that was interesting to cover because it's, it's cool and there's something there, but I think it's yeah. been extrapolated in a few wrong yeah. ways. Does that make sense? Yeah. That makes, yeah. It happens all the time too. So. I wish you were there with Derek. That would have been fun. That would have been fun too. That was a fun. Well, that was the worst freaking day. My grandma just had to die. Your freaking grandma. God damn it. Damn it, grandma. Do you remember though? That was, that was the worst freaking day recording wise. 
we got pushed. We got moved to a, a random studio without lights in it. And Granny died. That mm. was sad. That was a sad day. <laughs> so that is Tangat Ali and testosterone. Okay, so boosting testosterone. That's a grabby mm -hmm. word. Gut health. No, also grabby is talking example about word I just healing, used. Yeah, <laughs> healing your gut or reducing your bloating, which we've talked about a lot. But I really just wanted to run through some really common things and things people experience, most people experience on the daily that you may not realize are causing your digestive issues. And this is just general. I'm not saying causing a digestive disease. Obviously, if you have a disease like like Crohn's disease, for example, I'm not, that's not in the category here. This is applies to just any GI distress that has no known disease associated with it. This could mm -hmm. be just frequent gas, bloating, discomfort, it could be constipation, going to the bathroom too much. So I just want to put that disclaimer out here, but I have around six, six things here that I just want to run through, get the wheels turning a little bit because one of these might apply to you and hopefully this could help. But the first one is under eating, which I think we've talked about on the podcast a while back, mm -hmm. but consuming very little food too little food. So this is over time, consistently eating less calories than your body actually needs. I'm not just talking about under eating for a few days or even a week. Mm -hmm. It's prolonged under eating. So consuming very little food actually results in less waste in your digestive tract. So this can lead to severe constipation. This is why you see one of the many reasons why you see so many issues with constipation, bloating, discomfort with recovering anorexics or people who are kind of on the verge of anorexia yeah. really. And constipation, that's described as having three or fewer bowel movements per week. That's rough there. Okay. But you do not, your body is not one recognizing food enough when you put it into your system for it to sufficiently be able to move it through and pass it. But you just as a whole, you get used to having less waste in your digestive tract. So when you are eating that stimulus, you're not equipped with being able to move that food through your digestive system and be able to pass it properly. So this can lead to a lot of discomfort, constipation. And in just one study of 301 college-aged women, the strictest dieters were most likely to have constipation and other digestive problems, which I just thought was, mm. this is where you see the, the, the most common age is definitely college-aged. And this also leads to slower motility. So this delayed motility, that is what you see. Food is a stimulus for your, your digestive tract to say, okay, I need to start pushing food through and pass it along. So that food is going to be the stimulus for that. And motility is the movement of food through your digestive system. If you are not eating sufficient amount of foods over time, that causes your motility to slow. So that's where you feel very backed up. That leads to also bloating and discomfort. So under eating, something to think about. And it is that over time. So it's not this just a few days here and there. It is prolonged. That's when I feel like most people wouldn't think about eating too little, oh. putting mm -hmm. stress on your your gut problems. Yeah. And that was the hardest thing for me. I remember when I was working through just eating enough food for my body when I was recovering from my eating disorder is just mm -hmm. eating enough was so painful. It was so, 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 so painful because my body did not, was not used to yeah. having food in it. It was like, oh, sh and this is the most simple terms to put this into perspective. It's just like, oh shit, I, this volume of food, I don't know what to do with it. I have no idea what to do with it. I don't know how to get rid of it because I haven't been doing it for however many years, months. Um, that makes so much sense, but I feel like it's just not thought about. 
that much. Yeah. Like you, you don't yeah. see that as a problem that you'd encounter. Dang. Mm-hmm. That makes yeah. so much sense though. And then the next one is going to be stress and anxiety. So we have a whole episode on the brain gut connection. Definitely recommend listening to that. But this is also a huge one. So your brain has a direct effect on the stomach and intestines. So for example, the thought of eating can release stomachs, your stomach's gastric juices before food even gets there. And this connection goes both ways. So when a person might feel for example, like they're in danger. A fight or fight response in your central nervous system is going to be triggered. And at the same time, our enteric nervous system's response is to slow down or stop digestion. Now, Mm. people with chronic stress, chronically elevated cortisol levels, people with anxiety disorder, that fight or flight response is taking place at an abnormal rate you are triggering eliciting this fight or flight response frequently. Your body is in a state of panic. And that state is not optimal for digestion. Being in that state slows down or stops your digestion. So that is one piece where if you think about how stress and anxiety can affect how you digest your meals, if you're feeling more bloated, uncomfortable after a meal, What's your mindset going into that meal? How how are you feeling going into that meal? If you're chronically, and I think about this one a lot with people who are really obsessive over food and food really stresses them out, going into that meal stressed about what you're eating is not optimal for digestion. So that's also something to think about. Oh God, Uh, it's just making it, it's like a problem on top of a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And you're a person's stomach or intestinal distress can be the cause or the product of anxiety and stress or even depression. And that's because the brain and your GI system are intimately connected. And this is just, I wanted to make sure I included it because not many people think about that. Proper stress management is going to be huge for how comfortable you feel after a meal, especially if you have, if you have chronic stress. Mm-hmm. Regardless of if you're stressed about the meal or not, that's not always going to be an optimal state for digestion. And then also this anxiety piece, are we managing our anxiety? Are we addressing our anxiety, how we're feeling? And this just, this goes beyond, you know, that fight or flight response. This goes into, okay, our serotonin levels directly impact our gut microbiota, the amount of good gut bacteria, which are important for good gut health. So it's just something to think about. And it's also very fascinating. So I definitely recommend listening to that episode. And I think it will really apply to those with IBS as well. And which IBS sometimes is dismissed in the general healthcare system. So mm-hmm. hopefully that could be helpful. And this is a good segue into the next one that I think many people won't don't talk about. And I beat this into like I tried to talk about this as much as I can, but eating too much fiber. So full disclaimer, most Americans do not get the recommended amount of fiber, right? So I don't want people to think, be fearful of fiber. This is like a subset of the population, but this is very, very prevalent in those with IBSC and those with SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So a subset of the population with these, it's a functional gastrointestinal disorder, and it's just something that I think not enough people think about, but it could be really beneficial, even though this is not going to apply to the majority of you guys. But how could this be? So fiber, we do not digest it. Human beings do not digest it. It is fermented by the microbes in our gut. What is a byproduct of that fiber fermentation? 
gas, gas. So if you are eating too much fiber, so let's say the recommendation is around 25 grams, 25 grams of fiber per day Mm -hmm. for an adult woman. Say you're eating, I would say too much. It's commonly seen in the upwards of like 50 grams of fiber per day. So if you're doubling that, or if you even go from eating, you know, 10 grams of fiber per day to, oh, I got to eat more up to 25, that you will see that discomfort. So it kind of happens in in two camps, but having that excessive fiber intake every day over time, you are producing so, so much gas. Your microbes are producing so, so much gas. And that is lingering in your gut, in your stomach. And that is where you could see a lot of the bloating that can also promote constipation, a lot of discomfort. So it's something to think about. And this, that piece, you see it a lot of people who eat very healthy, eat very clean, only eat all of the vegetables, right? It's very common in vegans. I was going to say, I feel like a plant-based dieter would see that more frequently just because they have so much fibrous foods where most Americans mm -hmm. don't. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And also just soluble fiber. It's there's soluble and insoluble fiber, but soluble fiber does form this viscous like gel in your stomach. It is so good for your health fiber. We love fiber. However, too much of that, it slows digestion. So soluble fiber slows digestion, which is a good thing, but too much of that can also lead you to be feeling very, very backed up. So just something to consider. I feel like everything we've talked about today, every single category has belonged on the laugher curve right? Like more is better until it's not right. Like it's a sliding mm-hmm. scale. Like if you're up here, more fiber is not a good thing. Like it's going to make things worse. If you're down here. Yeah. More fiber is great. Vitamin C, zinc, <laughs> yeah. everything is, we just need it's a, a whole call to balance. Of- this is when it comes to nutrition, this is the epitome of what dietitians, nutritionists, anyone say when it comes to balance, like that's what yeah. we mean. But the next one is going to be poor sleep. So if you have poor sleep quality or you're not getting enough sleep, that's going to really fuck with your gut health. And I'm sure a lot of people do not want to hear it because sleep is not, there's not an easy fix, but our digestive system continues to work even when we're sleeping. And during our sleep, our digestive system is busy repairing, rebuilding tissues in our gut while also growing the good gut bacteria that aid our digestive processes. If we do not have proper sleep, if we're not getting enough sleep, that is going to affect your gut health. Our sleep assists the smooth functioning of our digestive system, smooth muscle functioning of our digestive system through rest and repair. And lack of sleep can have a negative impact on this process, lead to constipation, increased inflammation in the gut lining, increased cortisol, increased stress. And what did we talk about? Stress that's going to have a negative effect on your overall a lot of these kind of well. feed into a downward spiral. Like the less you mm-hmm. sleep, the more stress you'll get, which will cause you to sleep. Like all these things are kind of like feeding off of each other almost. Yeah. Yeah. So Scary. sleep is a big one. And intuitively, if you think about it, okay, that makes sense. Like sleep is a yeah. time of rest. Our body systems need to rest so that they can function optimally when we are awake. They still need that rest and repair time. That is what sleep is for. That's why people preach sleep health because that's priming you to be able to function at your optimal rate when you're awake. Um, Okay, sleep. And then 
five and six, I just kind of put together because they kind of serve a similar purpose, Mm -hmm. but a sedentary lifestyle and then also not drinking enough water. So obviously they're not the same thing, but they both play a huge role in keeping things moving. So if you're not moving at all, that's not promoting. If you're sitting all day in the same position, that is not an optimal position to be in for digestion. Going for a walk and just getting a few more steps in daily is going to help with the movement of food through your digestive system. Same with drinking water. Drinking water is going to promote the movement of food through your digestive system, especially if you're eating a higher fiber diet. You definitely, definitely, definitely want to be making sure you're drinking enough water as well. So both keep things moving. And I think you can make, those are things where it's like a small change could go a long way. The movement part, I had no idea how much it impacted you. I anecdotally speaking, I know I don't shut up about this, but when I added a 10 minute walk after each of my three big meals of the day, my God, did I notice a different, I I didn't think I had a problem with digestion before I had no, I wouldn't have said I had an issue with it, Mm -hmm. but after just adding those movements, I can't really explain the feeling of just feeling more smooth, but it makes more sense because if you're just sit like sitting right like this, Mm -hmm. like look at where your core just is. Like it's just kind of compacted. It's sitting right here. I had no idea how much of a difference that would make. That's one of the biggest, I know we talk about big health habits we both changed that went the furthest. That's one of them for me is those short little walks after a meal. Absolutely huge. All of those that you just listed, I don't hear people talk about when it comes to improving gut health. No. No. None of them. None of those things that you just listed. And like the, the way you explained it too, those are huge players that could be getting in your way. Like the simple, it's yeah. more just getting out of your own way than what you can add to it, right? Like supplement a, a routine. It's like get out of your own way is yeah. what it seems like for gut health, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's your, it's the, it's this ripple effect of these poor health behaviors that people kind of push aside and it just keeps adding up and adding up and adding up. And it's like, that's, that's where you see your gut. I mean, your overall health, but especially your gut too impacted negatively the most. Um, Yeah, adding in more vegetables is going to really feed your good gut bacteria. It's going to be good for your gut health. But if you're not sleeping enough, if you aren't moving much throughout the day, if you're not, it's it's the little things that you really want to make sure you tick all these boxes, and that's going to have the biggest impact. Again, gut health is very complex. So I don't want to oversimplify this and I don't want it to seem like doing one of these behaviors is going to cure your gut health. Um, but it's the overtime, these sort of health behaviors do have a big impact. So, And this wouldn't be an FS pod episode if we didn't give you a friendly reminder not to spend your money on greens powders like Bloom or AG1 that claim to fix your bloating. Yeah. It wouldn't be an episode. It wouldn't be an episode of SS Pod. I don't think. No. <laughs> so that's a fair. That's a fair. So all that saying that none of that was go buy a green spatter that says it will. That was a big one. Now let me wrap it up by hitting you with a a quote from a famous philosopher. Let me see if you know who this one is. A little trick. The more that you read, the more things that you will know. The more things that you will know, the more places you will go. You know who said that? Dr. Seuss. You looked, didn't you? You freaking no, no. I'm a big Dr. Seuss fan. A big, big Seuss fan over here. I love Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss. Okay, we get asked all the time about fitness books. We've had authors on here like Alan Aragon when he came out with his book Flexible Dieting. Ben Carpenter came on here when he released his book Everything Fat Loss. 
fitness books are huge if you're looking to understand and take your education to the next level, right? Obviously, listening to podcasts like this one where we teach and take you through different aspects of it, books can be helpful for certain people. I don't know. Do you learn better off of reading through books? I know you like books to read through uh, like your fantasy, but do you like to consume <laughs> information through reading it? Or do you like to consume your information in separate ways when you're trying to like learn something new? When I'm trying to learn something new, I've kind of always been a mixed bag between like a textbook person and whether it's courses, research. Um, but yeah, books, books have always been like, if I want to learn about a new topic, that's going to be one resource that I'm seeking out is a good book on it. Because I'm like, the, I, I really would attribute, and this sounds ridiculous, but outside of any certification, any course, anything like that, I would I would really attribute nearly 90% of education that I've, like useful education that I've gained through reading other experts in this field's books, blogs, or research reviews mm -hmm. over the past several, several years. Like the, the, the valuable information in some of these powerful pieces, they're invaluable, right? They're invaluable. And we get asked this all the time. We talked about it on our AMA episodes over in premium. So we went ahead and made a, a list, right? I made this list of 10. So I'm you actually, I want to see if Give you would add or, or subtract, right? So we made a list of the top 10 fitness books of all time, right? The top 10 fitness books of all time. If you're looking to next level your progress in the gym. Now, this isn't going to be in a most particular order. I just kind of more thought of them as they came up in my head and was in placing them in them pieces. Right. Yeah. First off is, and we haven't shut up about this, and this is with as little bias as possible. I think bigger, leaner, stronger, or thinner, leaner, stronger by Mike Matthews would be the best place to start. If you're looking at getting a book into reading about fitness from the level of, if you've never thought about working out in your life to, I wish if I could gift the coaches in this field that I see professionally, one book to read that would help transform how they coach, how they train, how they subscribe diet. This would be the book I would give to professionals in this industry above anything else. It is the most complete guidebook. I think you could, it's the most gifted book. I think I've had fitness wise. Like I like to give books to different individuals. This is by far the one that I buy the most for other people. It's massive, right? That I had to put that at the top of my list. I don't know if you feel the same in that same way or, or if you have something better, but that's my number one. It's just, it's going to be a guide that gets you up to 90% of what you need in training, programming, nutrition, the science behind these different principles that gets you 90% there. So I had to put that on number one. You want to take it off? Valid. Do you like it there? You like no, it there? I think that's valid. All right. So bigger, leaner, stronger, or thinner, leaner, stronger, which I know don't use your FS if pod 20% off. Don't use this code, but they do have it on their website in PDF form for like five or $7. So don't use the code because yeah. that'll just... I think it'd be a waste of a code because you could save way more money buying a supplement. But if you want to buy the book, it's literally in PDF format for it's on sale sometimes for 99 cents, but it's like max seven bucks. Best decision you'll make. Second mentioned earlier, starting strength by Mark Ripito. I, I think this is usually when I hear most people talk about the best books ever written in fitness. This is usually up at the top of the list, right? If you're serious about strength training, you just, you need to read starting strength. Okay. It's the most comprehensive guide to barbell weightlifting that you will ever read, right? It explains everything that you need to know, mainly focusing on squat, bench press, overhead press, and deadlift. So you can do it safely and effectively, right? Like each chapter is really focusing on a particular movement. It breaks down the main challenges, the characteristics, 
And it shows a lot of cool, helpful visuals and pictures too of proper and improper form. So you can really start to work through these things on your own. And I think Mark Ripito does a really good job. We've talked about like helpful cues in weight training, right? Not just like how to do the movement, but how helpful cues can be. Like imagining squatting the floor apart or ripping a, a paper towel apart with your feet on the floor when you're squatting. These cues are mental reminders that really help you dial in the, the techniques. Mark Ripito, I think is great for those, which I'm curious, have you read Starting Strength? Mm -mm. Oh, no, but I've heard of it. Not just from you. Be on the lookout <laughs> for your Christmas present from Tony this year. <laughs> Number three I put on here and we've talked about before is Glute Lab by Brett Contreras. And this one, people are like, what, what the Glute Lab? Why is it this high on the list? It drives a lot of people away, especially guys, because of the title, right? Glute Lab, right? It's about glutes, your butt. Guys are like, eh, I guys want to grow their glutes. <laughs> I think guys should want to grow their glutes for health reasons too. It's one of the, I think, greatest books it hands down the greatest book about glute hypertrophy ever written, mm -hmm. but it's also a phenomenal book for its comprehensive approach to just strength training and physique development in general, right? Overall, it teaches you through the glutes, but you have to remember muscle hypertrophy is the same. This is the same muscle tissue throughout your entire body that applying your, your glutes, right? The anatomy is going to be a little bit different there, but the muscle tissue, so how you grow, how you strength train, how you program, how you progress, the biomechanics, the anatomy of all this. Phenomenal book start to finish on someone who could be the least interested in glute training ever, right? So I think this would be especially helpful, honestly, for coaches and non-coaches as well. Number four and five, I kind of grouped together, but this is Flexible Dieting by Alan Aragon or A Guide to Flexible Dieting by Lyle McDonald, which I read Lyle's book a long time ago. It came out. He's he was big in the field for evidence-based a long time ago, but he's kind of fallen off because he's, I don't want to say crazy. I don't like calling people crazy, but he's mm. a little, he's fallen off into a really weird path. But anywho, phenomenal book, right? Now, both books are similar in their core philosophy, right? Being the concept of flexible dieting and really just emphasizing not needing to focus on individual foods, but overall dietary patterns that matter the most for body composition change. But they're different in several ways. And I think this would help you determine where you'd want to go if you're looking for a good diet book, right? Lyle's book is more of like a deep dive into the physiological and metabolic aspects of dieting. And it can get more technical where Alan's book, which we both read before he came on here, is more grounded. It's still very grounded in science and research, but it's a bit more approachable. Yes. I think I for the it. general audience. Like I think he speaks really, really well with those ideas. If you're just new into the nutrition, I would say start with Alan. If you're a coach who's been in it for a while, I think Lyle's book would be a great place to go to. The next few taper off. I think those would be my biggest five that I'd recommend. Six through 10 though, would be Strength Training Anatomy by Frederick Delavere. I think I'm pronouncing that right, but I actually never double checked on that, right? But more of a comprehensive guide on strength training. And it's really good with, I think, visual representations. Mm. The next one will be all about powerlifting by Tim Henriquez. So that's another guy who developed strength standards that we were talking about earlier, but it's more of a book. And I think if you're really interested in powerlifting and strength training in general, this would be a big one, right? So it's more of an introduction to those new into the sport of powerlifting and strength training, right? So it's a comprehensive guide, more focused on the sport of powerlifting. So it focuses not just on the fundamentals, like Mark Ripito's starting strength, and programming, but the nutrition aspects of it, the weight cutting, the meat preparation, the accessory work, uh, assisting exercises that help you improve certain lifts, 
very cool book and kind of down to the mental aspects even. So that's a big book if you're more serious about powerlifting in particular. The final few are the 531, the simplest and most effective strength training for raw strength book written by Jim Wendler. That's probably if you look at like all time greats, that's got to be up on the list. He's breaking down his 531 training program, but he does so in a phenomenal way. I think for coaches, especially if you really want to get into the nitty gritty, though, like the details of programming and progressing, that is a beautiful way to learn different maids to do that. Yeah. Uh, number nine, bodybuilding, a scientific approach by Frederick Hatfield, PhD, AKA, AKA people call him Dr. Squat. I think it's kind of <laughs> cool. More of a comprehensive guide to bodybuilding that integrates. I, I like this because it integrates science with practical application. I know we've talked about a lot of time, like how sometimes in the bodybuilding space, certain aspects lead research, like research follows. Sometimes it gets taken too far, but it's a nice blend of science and anecdotal information just being in the field for so long. And then the final one, I think some people would dig. I haven't made myself all the way through this, but it was more just, I wasn't as, I didn't care about as much, but functional training for sports by Michael Boyle, which is it. more principles and practices of functional training, right? More specifically mm. like tailored for enhancing sport performance. Yeah. in the functional aspect because i think people overuse the term functional training but mm -hmm. that's my top that's my top 10. i really had to, i've never thought about it and put together like a list 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 of top 10. man if you read most of those if you read five of those books you're There's, pretty yeah. far ahead you're farther ahead than like 99 percent of coaches in this and i'm, I'm mm -hmm. not joking like most coaches i think you would surpass if you read five six of these books yeah add one to the list what's your favorite textbook from school I have it in my, literally right on my desk, but it, it's about, it's a human metabolism book. So it was like my biochemistry 402 class. <laughs> it's on Amazon, right? It's on Amazon for like 20 bucks. You, you buy the, the ebook. I think you can. Oh, that would actually be clutch. Yeah, be but clutch. you don't want to. There's, it's a doozy. She's a doozy. She's a doozy. <sighs> That's a big round robin. I love these round robins, like bouncing around to different things, not going too deep into one. I love them every once in a while. Spring I do too. There's a lot anyway. to talk about and it allows you to, us to. Yeah. I don't we know. Touch on things that we never have had a chance to do that we love talking about, which if you guys have yeah. more ideas for topics that might be good for these round robin, let us know. Show us a DM. If you're in premium, you can even ask in the AMA, which we took like the book question was from our AMA that we wanted to transfer over here because it's such a good question. So that's all we got this freaking week so if you're in premium we'll see you all this friday checking out on your one week mark from the full body training program that got released last week which is free to all members again it's only five bucks to be over in a premium side so if you're not over there what you doing and we'll see everybody else next monday do us a favor check out that website in the meantime play around with yeah. it we probably got bugs to fix but let us know we're trying to get better and <laughs> helping you get better mariana give them your famous sign off note what do we got this week? Go for a walk, drink some water, and read a book. And we'll see you next week. <laughs> Damn, that was one of the best ones yet. You heard, <laughs> you heard the woman. Go do it. We'll talk to y'all soon.